Hey, I know you're probably driving or running or cleaning the house or doing something else when you're listening to this, but look, if you're a B2B marketer and you need to start generating revenue from your marketing, then you have to check out our 12-week program, the B2B Incubator. It's built for small in-house B2B marketing teams with limited time and budget. We give you the strategy, the templates, and the tools to start driving revenue, not just leads. So if you're ready to act on all the advice Kevin and I give you, next time you take that first sip of coffee in the morning, make sure you head to the b2bincubator.com and apply now. There's only 10 spots available per cohort with our next one launching in February 2024. Remember, the b2bincubator.com. Apply now so you don't miss out. We've had B2B marketing managers, CMOs, marketers in demand journal roles, and content leads, and more all go through this program and they're currently executing the demand strategy that they created in it. Again, make sure you check out the b2bincubator.com and apply now to start driving more demand and more revenue for your brand. Okay, let's get on with the show. Welcome to the B2B Playbook Podcast. Each week, we discuss strategies and tactics to help B2B businesses grow online. We're your hosts, Kevin and George, a couple of digital marketing professionals. We've waded through the noise and made the mistakes so you don't have to. The B2B world has changed and you need to put your customers at the heart of your marketing. We'll cover how you can use our framework, the five Bs, to create a brand that customers are ready to buy from, love and advocate for. We'll get insights from successful people in the industry and cover the latest trends to keep you on the cutting edge of the B2B world. If you're interested in B2B marketing strategies and tactics that work, then this podcast is for you. Subscribe to get the latest from the B2B playbook first. Remember, successful B2B marketing starts with the buyer. Welcome back to the B2B Playbook. This week's interview is with Lachey Lewis. Lachey is the founder of Authority Plug, where it's her mission to turn SaaS content teams into pipeline powerhouses. The stuff she's doing to help SaaS businesses drive inbound leads from Bofu content is incredible. Such a focus back on intent and the customers, as well as working closely to get valuable information from sales, CS, and product teams. They're all the building blocks of successful B2B marketing or demand generation, as we know. Kev, what do you think of this one? Well, I think something that listeners might lose sight of in the weeds of this discussion is that what Lachey shares with us is infinitely practical and presents the perfect introduction point or project to get started with the demand generation journey. There's lots of practical tips and a very clear set of projects that you can get stuck into to get the ball rolling when you come to doing demand generation. If you're sales-led, it really involves all the users through sales, through customer success, and through the product teams, and should really drive a lot of alignment as well as great results right from the off that will all then get that important, crucial buy-in from leadership without too much resource drain on you in the marketing team. Okay, listeners, we hope you find this episode really helpful in that sense and you enjoy this chat with Lachey Lewis. Welcome back to the B2B Playbook. Listeners, as you know, we rarely have guests on our show. Instead, we select a few true experts who align with our view that B2B marketing is more about people, not platforms. Today, our special guest is Lachey Lewis. Lachey is the founder of Authority Plug, where it's her mission to turn SaaS content teams into pipeline powerhouses. 
That means she's all about helping companies make content that drives inbound leads. I first discovered Lachey in the wonderful world of LinkedIn where she shares her no-nonsense frameworks. I'm very excited to have her on today because she's just so damn practical. Lachey, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, George, for having me. I am ecstatic to be here. So excited. Look, we've been in each other's worlds for a little while here. And look, at least from my point of view, you've had this seemingly meteoric rise over the last year, just in our corner of the B2B world. But I know that behind every overnight success, there's a real journey behind the scenes. Are you able to tell us a little bit more about how you came to hone your craft as the absolute SaaS content strategy weapon that you now are? Yeah, you're right. It started a while ago. So all of this started when I was about 16 years old. I started building these affiliate websites. And it was in the midst of that process that I taught myself content strategy because I would write around these keywords like best this for that and just like reviewing everything from like female hygiene products to camping gear. Like it was everywhere. That's when I first taught myself about the idea of content strategy and how there are different funnel stages and buyers are mentally in different places within each one of those stages. So for me, I cut on to the whole bottom of funnel thing very early. And I noticed that when traffic would come into these specific articles, like best this for that, it would convert really, really high to the point where I would build four or five affiliate sites and they would people would buy them off of me before I could publish them because they bought into the idea. Because I would always start with keyword research first and then expand outward versus how everybody else did it. They started with the niche and then they went for the keywords. So I've always been like data-driven type of person from affiliate websites. So Amazon, for anybody that knows how their commission structure is set up, it's not designed for you to become rich off of it. Barely live off of it, in my opinion. So 3% commissions weren't cutting it. So I moved over to e-com. I started working at some SEO agencies and things like that. So from there... I got comfortable with e-com, did really well with it. Again, bringing back the affiliate marketing experience that was still e-com physical products on Amazon. Then I started getting bored. And unfortunately, <laughs> when I get, um, and I say unfortunately, but it's probably a good thing. I tend to try to find like new avenues to explore, to challenge myself. As much as I don't feel like doing that sometimes, it just, my brain just drags me that way. So I started diving into software. And when I first got into it, I absolutely hated it. I said, this is too much. It's confusing. How do people do this? It's extremely boring. It's technical. But after some pretty rough up and downs with trying to learn product-led, I was able to like put together in my own way how bottom-of-funnel product-led content should be crafted. And a lot of that just comes from doing the same thing for 14 years. Like... You start to catch on to some things that work. And then what I did from that was just templatize what works while still making it dynamic. And I know I'm probably like jumping in the deep end right off the bat, but <laughs> what I mean is just like taking frameworks, but still having them customizable to a certain extent. So multiple companies are able to be 
helped with the same process versus having a custom solution for everybody. Wow. Look, just to go back to your origins in affiliate marketing, that's actually where I fell in love with marketing as well and was my first introduction to it as well. And also an Amazon affiliate, I tried to <laughs> rank uh, websites for roller derby. So I made a little bit of money nice. selling. <laughs> yeah. Selling, if, I had no idea what the sport was at all. Right. And then I looked into it and I was like, this is this crazy physical roller skating thing that is really big in the US. And I was just like, what is this world? Yeah. And then, yeah, I was like, okay, well, this is my world now. I'm now getting deep into roller derby. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's how it is. It's like, as you start building around the topic, you just naturally start to learn about it. And I forgot to mention too, like when I would build these affiliate sites, first of all, I would build them in Elementor, right? Nice little no code website builder. I would create templates for these bottom of funnel articles. And it took me up until this year of realizing like, whoa, those skills that I had back then are playing a role right now because I do the same thing now, but I just do it on a much more nuanced scale than affiliate marketing. Uh, because SaaS is just more nuanced by nature. But yeah, those skills came from all from building websites, affiliate ones too. Yeah. Wow. They all add up. That's for sure. And look, you mentioned your frameworks. That's something I really want to get into. And I think they'll be a great example of what our market is and what our listeners should do. But maybe before we jump into that, maybe we should go into what they shouldn't be doing. Yeah. I want to go into, I was like, what are the symptoms of a bad content strategy. I'm sure that you've seen your fair share of them. What does that kind of look like, Lachey? Yeah. So there are a few different symptoms, for lack of a better word, of a bad content strategy. So number one being you're getting traffic, but you're not getting any conversions on that traffic. And that could be subsetted into two different problems, which is either one, you're not, you're really not getting any conversions on that, or two, you're not tracking it the right way. So that's another set of issues, at least on the tracking forefront. Um, another symptom is if you have no strategy behind your posting. So if your posts look along the lines of something like our team retreat next month and our new update and what the industry says about this and very just high level top of funnel topics, that could be another sign that you're not utilizing your blog the way you could be. You don't have a good content strategy in place. Usually those are the two main things that I see on my strategy calls. When I talk to startups, I see the same thing over and over. And it's really just, they either have no content strategy or they have one that they're trying to execute. Maybe an agency is trying to execute it for them or what have you, but they're still not able to fully follow through on that execution. It's just very high level. And again, I know I've worked at almost a dozen SEO agencies. Like the, a lot of the reporting is like very smoke and mirror. And I'm not trying to talk down on agencies. I'm just, there are some great ones out there. I got, I learned a lot of what I know from an agency as well. So don't want to clear the air with that, right? No smoke, <laughs> agency, no smoke. But usually that's what these startups have to deal with. Those are the symptoms that I commonly see of people that don't have either a content strategy in place at all, or they're producing, but there's no thought and there's no actual strategy behind that production. 
And it's not generating them any inbound leads, most importantly, above all else. Yeah. And that really should be one of the key roles of content is leading people down that journey, leading them from being unaware that they really have a problem that you can help with all the way through to the logical conclusion that you're the perfect solution for them. And look, I find that very interesting about what you say about agencies too. I think if a content team or an organization is pumping out very high level industry insights, Mm -hmm. that is normally very clearly done by an agency. It's just Mm -hmm. so vague. It's so generic. It's not really aligned with the business at all. And maybe that takes us to Lachey, what a good content strategy kind of looks like and what an impact a good content strategy should have on a SaaS business. Yeah. So what a good content strategy should look like, first of all, when you're building it, you want to focus on intention over search volume. So just because you go into a pick your tool of choice, I like Ahrefs. So just because you go into Ahrefs and you see a keyword that gets 10 or 20,000 searches a month, and it's related to the thing you do, the related to the, to the product that you know, you, you sell, doesn't mean that you should create content around it. High search volume is not pure indication of we need to build our campaign around this thing, this keyword, this topic. What's more important is how many terms can you find where the intention is to purchase something, specifically something that you give to the market and then you know your differentiators and you're having your product market fit. And I think that's another important thing to touch on as well, because I know a lot of companies try to do SEO and things like that. Get your product market fit first, then SEO follows after that. A good content strategy is going to focus on intent. So intent meaning someone that's looking for this term is ready to make a purchase, not I'm trying to figure out what this is. I don't know really, you know, really know if I have a problem. How do I solve that problem? Like they are solution aware and they're ready to make a decision. Now they're just trying to choose between you and your competitors. And now that's where I would start when it comes with a content strategy. And I would start there because that's where the money is. That's where the inbound demos are. It's at, it's in the bottom of the funnel. So specifically with comparison pages. So best category software for use case is competitor versus you. That's another, it's a whole nother strategy, but you can do you versus competitor. You could do best category software. So those are like some different bottom of funnel terms, but it's really all about creating content around those specific terms and being able to position themselves correctly against their competitors. Sorry to interrupt guys, but I need to let you know that our next cohort of the B2B Incubator is launching in February 2024. For those who don't know, the B2B Incubator is our no-fluff program that gives you the strategy, the templates, and the tools that you need to drive more revenue for your business, not just leads. It's built for small in-house marketing teams with limited time and budget. So if you're ready to act on all the advice that we give you and you want to start driving more revenue for your business, next time you sit down at your desk with a cup of coffee, remember to head to 
the b2bincubator.com and apply now. There's only 10 spots available per cohort. So apply now for our cohort launching in February 2024 so you don't miss out. The b2bincubator.com. Check it out. All right, back to the episode. So what you're saying then in terms of tackling that bottom of funnel, high intense search keywords when we're talking about that, you've got like your top of funnel, your middle of funnel, your bottom of funnel. We're really looking at the low hanging fruit here. Yes. And I suppose that reflects those people who are really in those later stages of purchasing, which yes. as a content team, like we still have to address their concerns. And if we want to make an impact on the business and show that what we're doing is helping, that's an amazing place for people to start. I was just thinking myself, I'm looking at some different ABM solutions at the moment, and I came across one called Propensity. And Propensity had a whole article which compares them to every ABM solution out there. Mm -hmm. And it seemed like a pretty honest uh, comparison out there. Mm -hmm. I don't know how honest it was, but at least to me, it looked like, hey, you know what? They actually conceded that they're not quite as good on some things versus others. Yeah. It was incredibly useful, and it made me trust them. So is that what we're trying to get at here? Is that why we're doing this? Yeah, that's, it's about putting out truthful content, first of all. And my bestie Taz Bober talks about this all the time. It's about giving an honest comparison between your solution and your competitors. It's not about trashing anybody. It's not about providing any false narratives. It's about controlling your narrative because even if you don't create the comparison pages, somebody else will, whether it's Captera, whether it's G2, whoever it is. And then you're letting those companies control the narrative about your product instead of you writing the best article that you can and actually doing competitor research to understand the differentiations between you and your competitors. Obviously, you want to focus on keywords that lean more into yours, you know, that's just, we want to sell our thing, right? So of course we're going to like position ourselves. And that's not to say we're going to lie or anything. It's just, again, that's understanding positioning, right? Even when it comes back to consulting, it's like, I'm not saying I'm better than an agency, but I'm for certain companies, right? And agencies are for other. So it's, it almost comes back to that account-based marketing style thing. So it's when you're putting together a strategy like that, like that's what you want to focus on. And I tell everybody I talk to, the customer should be first and SEO should be second. And even keeping that methodology with all the clients that I work with and everything like that, I've never had a problem ranking because I'm focusing on the customer. It's never a fight of, ooh, should I make this SEO optimized or should I make it about the customer? It's always going to be about the customer first. And then we'll throw keywords in there, right? Like Google is smart enough to understand like contextual examples and things like that. Like they know what you're trying to rank for. If you can include it naturally throughout the text. But what's even more important is like weaving in real customer pain points and product features and benefits and capabilities and all those things into your product-led content. Oh, okay. So I think that actually leads us really nicely into going deeper into your BOFU strategy. Like bottom of the funnel is where your expertise really, really lies. Have you got, I guess, your framework that you can share with us 
as to how marketers can start planning and executing their BOFU strategy. Are you able to share more about that? Yeah, for sure. Again, the first thing I would do is you would start off with an audit, right? So I would do an audit. And again, I don't want any, I don't want any smoke for anybody that does audits differently, right? I'm not necessarily talking about a technical audit, although that's important too. I just don't, I'm not good at them. But <laughs> when we talk about an audit specifically from like a content strategy standpoint, what I would do is I would go through every URL in the blog. And what I would do is I would separate them out by top of funnel, middle of funnel, and bottom of funnel. And then once I separate those out, I would create assets for each of those funnel stages. Top of funnel is going to be more ebook, more white paper, more webinar, just very like introduction level type stuff. Let me get you used to the brand. And then middle funnel is going to be more like strategies, templates, playbooks. Maybe they're not ready to buy yet, but they're moving closer to that purchase making decision. And then bottom of funnel is just a pure demo play. And this is another, I guess, tip for content marketers out there. If you're creating anything best, bottom of funnel, whatever, do not send them to an email list. Do not send them to a webinar. Do not send them to anywhere else, but to the sales team or to a demo. That's an important distinction, I think, again, when we think about intent, when somebody's looking for the best sales enablement software, they're not expecting to read your piece and read what is sales enablement software? How can sales enablement software help your team? They've educated themselves in that already. Now they just want to know what you can do for them. Like, how can you solve their pain points? What specific features of your solution solves those pain points? How do they work? You should be like including contextual examples. So anybody that needs help understanding what contextual example means, it's just like, for example, right? Give me a real life scenario with your product in use and give me a vision of what it's like to use it. And I know I'm like, ranting, but I've got so much to say as it relates to this specifically, but even feature dumping, right? So I'm not, so when I say product-led content, I don't even mean feature dumping. Taking your customer's most dying pain points and where do you find them? You talk to the sales team. They're going to have the answers to those questions. Once you find out those dying pain points, that's when you start to match those up to benefits of your product. And then you start to match those benefits to features of your product. That's really what bottom of funnel articles are mostly composed of. So as you're collecting this information, you're gathering the material to be able to create this bottom of funnel sales enablement content. Companies that I work with all the time, they share their bottom of funnel pieces with SDRs and things like that. It helps move people through the pipeline. And that's why... You have to get this information internally. You cannot depend on a freelance writer to search best this for that and then attempt to try to compile a review if they know nothing about your customer, nothing about your product, nothing about the use cases. You just can't expect that from them. And I think that's the misalignment in the market with not being able to find great writers 
it's not that it isn't great writers out here. It's just that you're not giving them the information on your product that you need for them to be able to create you a strategy that drives in revenue. And I know that was a mouthful, but I just, that was important for me to get out. (laughs) No, definitely. And look, I absolutely agree that these things ultimately need to come from in-house. And I think that's why it's so clever how you assist these businesses because you're able to give them your frameworks. They're able to rely on your expertise, but ultimately they have to leverage their insights from in-house and no one truly understands the product like you do when you're working in an organization full time. You spoke about with this bottom of funnel content that it should really speak to those pains and then uh, maybe relate that to a feature and then talk about the benefit that comes from that feature. Are you able to share more about that structure? Is that just a typical structure that you would take with the bottom of funnel page? Yeah, for sure. So from what I've learned over my time in content strategy and SaaS and things like that, there are seven, well, you could say eight, right? I'll I'll give an example, but there are seven core components to a bottom of funnel article. So there's pain points, benefits, features, alternatives, use cases, case studies, and testimonials. These are all different elements that are going to be included in your bottom of funnel content. And again, relating back to what I mentioned before about how a pain point needs to connect to a benefit, which needs to connect to a feature. And it's really just those components over and over again, just restructured in certain ways. Again, the ways that I figured out how to restructure them is purely through being a practitioner. It's from the clients that I work with now, it's from the clients that I've worked with previously, it's through continuous inflection and iteration, but this is what I've landed on thus far. And again, in an attempt to try to productize this, it's really trying to productize bottom of funnel content. It's operationalizing it. So when you understand the elements that are that a bottom of funnel article is composed of, you start to be able to play with frameworks. And it's easier for writers to catch on to because you have the information already sitting there for them. They know what pain points to talk about. They know what benefits to talk about. They know what features to talk about. All of this information is stored up for them, which should be like a single source of truth. And again, I have a content marketing dashboard that I've been giving away for free for months, and I'll continue to give that away for free because I think it's a great resource for teams to be able to have a single source of truth for their content strategy. I mean, I tell teams all the time, like I run the bottom of funnel content strategy as like a completely separate function from everything else because of the sheer amount of information that it involves and from the teams that information is needed from. So you need to talk to sales and CS and product. And then once you have alignment across those teams and then the marketing team starts to come in and push that message out because the other teams are aligned, that's when you get that marketing and sales alignment. So having a single source of truth, as difficult as it is for a lot of teams to go through this, it's a great exercise and it it helps get the team aligned because if you don't have alignment, you're not going to be able to create the bottom of funnel content in its full glory. 
So what I mean by that is like a lot of companies don't want to include the product in the pieces and they don't want to talk about competitors. And it's like these little nuance. It's, I don't want to call it bickering, but it's like certain content marketers can't do certain things because of the politics within their company. So we have to find ways around this to make it work, which was really one of the reasons I went out on my own because I wanted to be able to do the thing I want to do in full glory without any like red tape. But this is a way around that. This is a way to help teams, again, have that single source of truth and to be able to have their in-house writers pull information, their most important customer information, and turn it into these long form bottom of funnel comparison pages. I like that you gather those insights from sales and customer success, made it from the customers themselves. They all go in this one dashboard. And by the way, it's a fantastic dashboard. I've used Thank it myself you. and we'll link to it in the show notes, of course. And then I suppose because you have that information there, that lower funnel product level information around pains and solutions, that shouldn't change too often for a company that has achieved product market fit. Right. Unless they're constantly rolling out new updates or whatever it might be. So I, I suppose then, Lachey, as the marketer, you don't have to constantly be going back to the team for more and more insights when it comes to this bottom of funnel content. Is that right? Oh, 100%. And that's one of the biggest benefits that people that get the dashboard talk about. They're like, I, why did I never think of this? Like, why did I never think to go to the subject matter experts and get their information down once and then use it over and over and over again? Like you said, because the pain points and features and benefits and the other BOFU elements I talked about aren't going to change that much, especially once you found that product market fit you'll continuously add to it, right? So you might discover another pain point, but the way, and I have to show you, I haven't showed you the new rebranded dashboard yet, but the way this one is set up is for the audience, your audience to be segmentated, right? By whether you want to segmentate it by product, industry, persona, what have you. And that's when we get more into account-based marketing. But your industries are meant to be segmented. And then from there, that's when you want to go to the subject matter expert and get that information from them for that specific segment. And if I have people ask me as well, how do you know what segment to start with? Ever the team is telling you their goals and initiatives are, like if it's for them to push this specific product in Q1 or Q2, or if it's like they want more of this type of persona coming in or Whatever that goal is, that's where you want to drive the strategy to. And this is more of a tip for marketers working at companies with more than one product and they're just overwhelmed and they don't know where to start. That's where you start. Okay. And look, I'm very excited to see this new dashboard and very excited to share that with everyone as well. Okay. So that's a great place to start. One question that I did have when it comes to creating this BOFU content was, when you're creating versed competitor articles, there's not necessarily going to be a lot of keyword search volume around that. Should that stop people from creating those articles? Do those searches need to really show up in you know, Google Keyword Explorer or Ahrefs or whatever it might be? Or do we, do we just know that people are searching that and so we should create those articles anyway? 
this is a great question because a lot of people get hung up on this. And like I mentioned earlier in the episode, you don't want to put all the focus on search volume. You want to put the focus on search intent. Search intent, there, there are going to be more people at the top of the funnel than at the bottom of the funnel, right? There's some statistic out there where it's like only 3 to 5% of your market is even buying anything right now. Bottom of funnel makes up some of that 3 to 5%. It's not going to be a ton of keywords, but they're going to be very, very impactful. And that's the tricky thing about content strategy. It requires a shift in mindset to, oh, I would rather create content around this keyword that's high intent, but it gets 10 searches or so the tool says per month versus this one that gets 15,000 searches per month. A lot of CEOs and high level people that don't understand strategy can't conceptualize. Why would I go after the 10 and not the 20,000? But once they start, and let me tell you when they conceptualize it, six months into the campaign, when they're getting traffic, and they're not getting any leads, and they can't attribute the traffic back to pipeline, that's when they're like, okay, so what's happening? Where's the disc? There's there's a drop-off here. What's going on? That's when intent comes into play. And then they're able to say, okay, maybe we're not creating enough of this type of content. But then they try to create the bottom of funnel content the way they create the top of funnel content. Being very high level and not specific and not talking about their product. And so it's a lot of nuance and a lot of confusion in developing a good content strategy. But again, that's why it's important to have that mindset shift and it's not going to happen overnight, but it's important to understand if you're going through any one of those symptoms, as I call them, like you're getting traffic, but not getting inbounds and the company has no strategy. You're writing what I call company update style content where it's like, oh, we went here this week. When in actuality, nobody gives a shit where you went this week. Like they want to know what your product is going to do for them. Like just being totally honest. So I think when we look at it like that, yeah, there is a lot of nuance in creating content strategy. But again, that's going to be the singular focus. The singular mindset shift is intent over volume. And that's what people really need to pay attention to. Yeah. Don't let the tool determine if you go after this thing or not. Those tools are never all the way fully accurate. I've written around keywords that Ahrefs says gets 10 searches a month and gotten 30, 40, 50 visitors a day. So you, again, always have to take it with a grain of salt, but use it to help guide you. Another underutilized tool is like the actual Google search bar. Nobody uses that anymore. They're just like, okay, the tools tell all. But when you start typing something in the search bar and things start popping up, people are searching for those things. And maybe the third-party tools haven't picked it up yet, but it doesn't mean that they're not being searched for. So if somebody's searching your product versus competitor, why wouldn't you not want to show up? You know what I mean? Control your narrative. And then on top of that, like they're just amazing conversion drivers, even for enterprise level products. It's I work with companies. I'm working with a company now where their sales cycles anywhere from six to nine months plus. And we've been able to cut that down to like less than three months. And it's not that, oh, we're cutting it down. It's that we're skipping two funnel stages and going right for the person that's already been warmed up. Who have they been warmed up by? Probably your competitors. 
but you let them do that. And then you come in with the interception at the bottom and then you score the touchdown. I, I love that. And I suppose it makes so much sense why you would start with insights and questions from the customer that you garner from the customer themselves or sales and customer success. If they are expressing those pains or those questions to your sales team or your customer success team, absolutely. They're 100% Googling those questions themselves, whether or not Google or another tool is reporting that there's keyword search volume around it. People are Googling it. So that's why it makes so much sense to just take those questions that you're getting and hearing via sales and turning those into bottom of funnel content. You said that you can really shorten, I suppose, that sales cycle. And it's not necessarily that you are making it all happen faster, that you're targeting those who are further down their journey. I suppose for those listening, once they do have this bottom of funnel content strategy up and running, how long typically can it take for them to start to see some impact from it? Because I know that a lot of them are reporting to leadership. Leadership is probably a little nervous that all of a sudden they're targeting keywords with lower volume. So what can our marketers expect from it? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm not going to give you the generic, it depends, although that's true, but I want to add like a little bit more context than that. Being that you're targeting these bottom of funnel terms that first of all, a lot of other companies are not targeting because they still have that mindset I told you about that volume equals leads and sales and it doesn't. So you still have everybody going after those terms and you have this pool of bottom of, of bottom of funnel keywords. Essentially what you're trying to do is again, capture that market share, but how long it takes. And again, trying not to say it depends. It's a lot quicker than SEO usually is deemed to be right. So anybody that has reached out to an agency has probably asked the question, how long will it take for me to rank? How long will it take for me to get results? When we're talking about top of funnel, we're talking about things that get searched hundreds of thousands of times, probably per month. The same way your SEO person in-house went and found that keyword is the same way your competitor's SEO in-house person went and found the same keyword, right? So what's the difference here? Like we all have access to the same tools and everything. So I guess to... And again, I'm trying to like make up a bigger point, but let me just, I know people are like, oh my God, answer the question. For me, it takes usually around like 30 to 60 days to start getting that traffic. And again, I don't like to put time limits on things because I'm not telling anybody that it's definitively going to take this amount of time. SEO is very unpredictable. Google is unpredictable. Volatility in the SERPs, all that stuff. But typically, the bottom of funnel piece will be ranking within 30 days. Usually like 30 days or so after that, it starts to get traffic, things start to pick up. And another 30 days to 60 days after that, it starts to convert. And it works the same way every time. It's going to be traffic. And then you're going to start to get clicks on probably the CTAs in the article. And then that's going to happen for a little bit, for a little bit. And then you're going to see that first conversion. And then from there, it just grows. It, it compounds, right? So SEO is a loss leader in the beginning. But the great thing about it is that it compounds. It's like a moat. It just builds on top of 
each other's in years and years for as long as you rank, right? So I think that's why it's important for like companies and teams and leaders to understand having that, again, that mindset shift to it's not volume, it's intent. But yeah, that's what I would, that's what I would say about companies and their frame of mind on that. But 30 days for ranking, 60 days to start to really see some traffic and then like maybe 90 days for the conversions to start to come in. And again, don't hold me to that. I'm just giving like my experience. So anybody don't, again, no smoke, don't hold me to it. I'm just letting you know what, how things happen for me. Look, that makes sense from my point of view as well. There's normally very little competition around these, the keywords that this article is serving. They should be ranked well, particularly if you're using a framework like yours that really speaks to pain points, benefits, and features. You're giving people what they want as well, which is a fantastic sign for Google as well. You're probably going to have high engagement on that page too in terms of people scrolling all the way through. So it's written and structured in such a way that it should rank well. Something I wanted to loop back on was you mentioned CTAs and Mm -hmm. CTAs that you should use in these bottom of funnel pieces. Are there particular CTAs in mind that you have? Do you have any rules around CTAs and what they should be at this stage? That's a great question. So for me specifically, I don't um, do anything over the top as it relates to CTAs. I like to use in-text CTAs. I like to put like side note in bold or something in front of it to let people know, hey, this is the thing. Not saying that other things don't work. It's not... I'm trying to be careful with how I say this because it's like half true, half not. The CTA isn't going to make or break the article. That's half true and half not true. And I'll explain. So the half true part is if your CTA sucks. And when I say like sucks, I mean, if there's this long form they have to fill out. And again, I'm speaking from, because I'm working with companies now that are going through these same issues. I'm, literally doing it right now. If your form is long, you're probably not going to see the conversion rates that you could get if you shortened it up first, of course, and then maybe sent it directly to, and this may be for, this is probably more for sales led companies, but if you sent it directly to an SDR, I thought that increases the conversion rate. So if you have a bottom of funnel piece and you're like, oh, fill out our form or usually sending them directly to someone increases that conversion rate. Again, this is more for sales led, for product led, leading them right to a demo works great, works. So for the bottom of funnel pieces, I usually have three call to action. So I have one right after the intro. And I know this is a little bit of a side note, but always lead in with pain points in your intros because you have a couple seconds to really latch on to them what way to do that then immediately out the gate wham like home runs out the gate just pain point that hooks them in and then i'll have a call to action right under that and then under that is when i start getting into the features step by step adding contextual examples what it looks like in real life how to use it and then that's when we get into the competitors I have this conversation all the time with people. They're like, I don't want to include competitors in our comparison pages because of this, that, and third. 
the thing is they're probably including you in their comparison pages. And one thing I can probably guarantee you is that they're not giving you, your company, an accurate depiction the way you would give the same depiction about your company, right? They're creating the narrative about your company, your product, what you do. You know what I mean? So it's like, there's really nothing to lose when it comes to writing them, but a whole lot to gain. Yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. That that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate you sharing more on the specifics of like how to actually piece together this bottom of funnel content page. And I love how you've broken it down into essentially modules, it sounds like, that you yeah. piece together depending on the type of BOFU content that you're writing. So once a marketer has been through your process, they've gathered these insights, they've got their ideas down in this content marketing dashboard, how do they scale the creation of this content if that's something that they even need to do? I mean, we haven't really spoken about the volume and how much of this people need to do. So maybe can we talk about that? And if scaling is necessary, then how do they go about doing that? Another thing I love about bottom of funnel content reason 800 and whatever (laughs) that I love bottom of funnel content is because it doesn't take a lot of it to bring a lot of impact. So my results again, and then this is just me speaking from my own experience, but my results usually are around that six article point. So usually once we get six comparison pages out, that's when things start to happen a little bit. It does not take a lot of them, again, to make a significant impact in revenue, in pipeline generated, in SQLs, MQLs, whatever acronym you want to put for whatever your company identifies as an inbound lead. But it doesn't take a lot of those to achieve that. Again, I've been able to achieve some really good results with as little as six of them. But if you continue that process of creating and over and over, or for as until you exhaust bottom of funnel completely, and then you move middle of funnel, but that's a that's another episode. <laughs> but when you start diving in and you exhaust the bottom of the funnel, like you're gonna be the change in inbound leads that you're gonna get from where you are before you start versus once everything is exhausted is gonna be. I don't even have a word for it. It's going to turn heads. People are going to be like, whoa, it's because that's the impact that bottom of funnel content has. And especially when you can track it back to, and I know you mentioned something, read time and things like that. I've seen for as long as four minutes reading the piece, not to say that everyone stays that long, but the average duration of that is maybe like between two and four minutes. That comes back to, again, the skill level. When somebody is at top of funnel and they're targeting top of funnel, the skill level is lower. As you move down the funnel, the skill level gets higher. As that skill level gets higher, people are going to want to know the specifics. They're going to want to know the technicalities. They're going to want to know, okay, I'm having this specific problem. Can you solve it for me? That's the gap that companies miss when it comes to bottom of funnel content. The knowledge level isn't the same. You're asking a freelancer that specializes in healthcare or or another niche to come in and write for your technical product 
and to match it to your customers' pain points and to have them prove revenue from the pieces and to do all these things they're not going to be able to do. So again, yeah, I think just having that expectation of you're going to have to interview your internal teams to be able to craft this bottom of funnel work. I think that's important. Yeah, I think that's important as well. But I just wanted to touch on like that session duration thing because I've seen it. And this is as of recently, like, yes, the more you move down the funnel, the longer those read times are probably going to be. So you want to make sure the content is like top tier. So it sounds like then that you don't really need to scale the creation of this content too much. Like once you have these systems down in-house, it's not like you're trying to pump out 10 of these a month or so. Like get your baseline ones down. They will keep serving you into the future. And there's no real need to try and farm a huge volume of this out to an agency. Even a hundred percent resources in place. Yes. Yeah. So I like to aim for three of them a month, usually by like month three or four of that continuous, like you have something cooking by then you probably get in some traffic. You've probably seen a conversion or two. You don't need a lot of these quality over quantity. I always say, especially with bottom of funnel, and again, the impact of the impact that you get on revenue per article is so ridiculously high than everything else. You don't have to create a ton of them at one time. You just don't have to. Two to three a month, you're on the right track, especially like if you understand your positioning and your differentiators and value props and things like that. You're definitely on the right track for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'm a big fan of quality over quantity as well. Gone are the days where everyone is trying to trick Google. Like Google is much smarter than you. It just wants really good content. And what's great content? It's what your customers want. It's what they want to read. It's what they want to hear. It's what addresses their pains. So just take a human approach to it. Put yourself in the customer's shoes. Write that. And the rest should really take care of yourself. Obviously, there's some basic rules that you want to follow to make things a little easier for Google, but don't do it for sacrificing the quality and the customer who's actually reading at the other end. Yes, 100%. What about in terms of uh, how marketers should be measuring the success of this content strategy? We've talked about how this really should be tied to, to pipeline. Are there particular metrics that marketers want to be tracking around this content to show that, hey, we're making a real contribution to the business? Yeah. It's like to track, of course, inbound conversions, whatever a company classifies as a conversion, whether it's somebody reaching out to the sales team, filling out a demo, for whatever. That's the thing that I want to track for companies. I also like to see like average duration time and time on page and things like that. I know some companies use Hotjar as well to try to see where people are clicking on their page and things like that. Again, I like to track conversions. GA4 is terrible when it comes to everything. It underreports conversions. It does so much stuff. It's overly complicated. I like the product lead feeder as a bottom of funnel conversion tracking solution. I have a just made that up. <laughs> but if I had to give it like a keyword, like, yes, like a bottom, if you want to track inbound leads from the blog, like something like lead feeder is great 
There's another product called Amplitude. I've heard great things about them. There's Dream Data. I've heard great things about them. So there's some options out there, but that's what I would do. I would track conversions from your bottom of funnel pieces so you can show leadership. Look how there's no better feeling than taking a keyword that has 10 searches a month and taking it to leadership and showing them how it got four conversions this month. And I'm talking about for enterprise level products, right? So that's how I would be tracking the conversions. Um, and I would try to make that as clear as possible. That's how us marketers show our value. The whole marketing and sales conflict thing. It's like sales are is usually more closely tied to revenue. They have like close rates and things like that. Us marketers don't really have that. But this is a way that we can show our value and show how we're contributing to filling the sales team's pipeline. And then again, getting that information back from the sales team to pour it back into the strategy, which brings somebody back to the pipeline. And it's just a continuous information circle that, yeah, if you continue to feed that, you're going to grow for sure. I love how that connects the dots. And oh my God, I've got so many more things that I think you and I could talk about, but I think we've been going for pretty much an hour already and I want to be respectful (laughs) of your time and I think maybe we might need to have a part two and possibly even a part three in the yes. future. Yeah. Um, look, thank you so much for sharing like all your practical knowledge around bottom of funnel content. I think that our listeners are seriously going to benefit from this. I know they're all going to be better for it. Is there anything else that you'd like to direct our audience's attention to other than I suppose the content marketing dashboard, which we absolutely will link to in the show notes and on our website. Is there anything else that you'd like to point out to them or point them towards? Yeah, for sure. So the main thing, of course, I have is the the content marketing dashboard, but George is going to link that up for everybody. But you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn most days. I post maybe five or so times a week. And what I do is I like to simplify content strategy using visual frameworks. I also like to make the process of content strategy fun and exciting um, and really empower marketers to know their worth. Um, and just you know, be able to take that and run with it, hopefully build consultancies or whatever they want to do with their knowledge. But yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, Lachey Lewis. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Lachey. I can absolutely vouch for her content. It's fantastic. I'm so glad it comes into my feed every day. And if the algorithm hides it from me, I go out and find it myself. Thank you so much for your time, Lachey. It was lovely talking to you. Thank you, George. Thank you so much for having me. George, who knew SEO could be this interesting, especially for a couple of paid digital marketers by background turned demand generation guys like us. SEO was always that thing uh, in the background that we liked to dabble in, that we understood at a high level, but the day-to-day just wasn't as interesting for us by and large. What we've probably been discovering, the power of content this whole time for ourselves, and now with this conversation with Lachey and the things that she's putting in and helping align teams around. We really know a lot more about SEO and the impact it can have, especially putting a lot of things from our previous life and agency and in-house into stunning contrast. Yeah, there was so much practical gold there, Kevin, and I love how Lachey was able to really just combine, I, I think, like sensible content marketing that reflects how a business would like to buy or how a person would like to buy and also do it in a way that Google's going to love it too. You've got to write for the user 
as like a primary audience and Google as a secondary. And I think her framework really ties those two in nicely together. Some other key points that we love from Lachey was, look, go for intent over search volume. You want to play in Bofu content first. And in that space, there's barely any search volume, but there's plenty of actual buying intent and revenue impact that you can drive. So if you're going and looking at Google Keyword Explorer or Arefs or wherever it is that you get your keyword search volume data from, don't be put off if it's super low. If you know that your buyers are asking these questions, there's a good chance that they're going to be searching for it on Google. So write those articles. Wow, what a revelation, hey, for a couple of uh, traditional agency background guys. Intent over search volume. Who would have guessed? Second point that we really loved from that episode was, like everything else we talked about on this podcast, it's customer first. And then add in the keywords and SEO considerations if it serves that customer naturally. That means, again, speaking to your sales teams, speaking to your customer success and product teams, and get to real customer pain points and benefits that resonate when they have those conversations with those real customers and hone in on those, all those points in your Bofu content as well. And that's what it's about, Kev. It's about the quality of what you're doing. It's the quality over the quantity. And Lachey really applies that to her framework. And she shows us that whether it's search volume or content volume, quality is more important than quantity here. The quantity will follow. Let someone else do the warm up for now. That's it. Eventually, when you have the resources to help out with warming up the industry and the audience for yourselves, you can definitely dive into that. But hey, we need impact from day one. We need to show that value to get the buy-in, to get the ball rolling. So focus on Bofu and focus on quality over quantity. And finally, also be accountable for conversions from day one. As Lachey says, there's nothing more satisfying than showing that piece of content ranking for 10 searches a month with a search volume of 10 searches per month. And that keyword brought in four conversions for that month. You don't actually need a lot of search volume to get those revenue impacting conversions right from the off. That's it. We talk a lot about how to create demand on this podcast, but capturing demand is also very important. And Lachey shows a great way for content marketers to do that. All right, listeners, go and find Lachey Lewis on LinkedIn. We'll be linking out to her profile in the show notes. And as always, we're so stoked that more and more of you are joining us each Monday by listening to the podcast or watching us on YouTube. And if we can ask one thing, it would be to please pass the show to someone that might enjoy and get value from it or leave us a short review on whatever platform it is that you watch or listen to us on. It's a huge help to us. It's a great help to our future listeners, and we really, really appreciate it. A huge thank you again to Lachey. Thank you, Kevin, and thank you, listeners. Take care, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks, Lachey. Thanks, George. Thank you, listeners. Take care and catch you all next week. A quick note before you go, listeners. You can find more great content and get in touch with us at theb2bplaybook.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter while you're there to get the latest news, tips, and resources from our playbook. We'll be back the same day and same time with another episode next week. Thanks for tuning in to the B2B Playbook. Remember, successful B2B marketing starts with the buyer.